Can I ask you to pray with me? Father, we come before you in victory. We praise the name of the Lord our God because of what was done for us. We can gather here today incredibly with joy, amazed at what you've given us. Forgiveness of our sin and eternity with you just because we believe. How amazing, Father. God, I thank you for every soul that's gathered here, for every person who's watching online. I ask that you would open our minds, you would speak directly to our hearts. Through your word, Father, bring us a sense of understanding of who you are and who we are before you. We praise you for the freedom that we know in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Before you have a seat, would you turn to someone next to you and say hello? If you have your Bibles with you, would you open it up to Romans chapter 4? It's going to be in Romans this morning. If you don't have one, you're going to see the verses along on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, we have three Bibles in the back. You can pick one up when you leave this morning so you have a copy of God's Word. Best thing you can own, right, church? Right? You want to have, everybody wants to have a copy of God's Word. So we have free ones in the back for you for that reason. Uh, a special greeting to those who are watching online this morning. And I know that uh, you know, when you tune into something like this, you don't get the experience of being part of what's going on in the auditorium this morning, but we really want you to be part of what's going on here. You can even be part of communion that we're about to celebrate in just a little bit. If you've got some juice and crackers in the house, you're welcome to join us in the communion service as well. I, I really want you to be in Romans chapter 4 so that you can look at the promises and the commitments that God has made to us this morning so you can see it with your own eyes. There's some remarkable things that are going to come out of verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. So I start off this morning by asking you this question. And, and uh, it, it may tempt you to want to answer out loud, but don't do that. What's the worst sin you've ever heard of someone else committing? Right? It, it just keep that thought to yourself. What's the worst sin? The thing you just think like, I can't believe they went to that place. In my mind, when I started thinking of that, I just immediately started thinking of some of the atrocities in our mm, last hundred years. Joseph Stalin, 20 million people that killed through the purge that he carried out in Russia, um, especially the bulk of them during World War II. Then my mind went to Idi Amin. You might remember him. He was a ruler of Uganda in the 1970s. It appears he's responsible for somewhere around 700 people being slaughtered. And more recently, 2014, 2015, 2016, what's going on in Syria? You know, the, the historians are going to be talking about that for a long time. The, the slaughter of the innocents, 500,000 people, we're told, just by a ruling party who wants to wipe them out. And you look at it and say, man, how is humanity capable of that? So we look at sins like that, and it starts to cause us to start feeling pretty good about ourselves, right? Like we're looking at that and thinking, I may have issues, but at least I'm not like that. So what about you? What's the worst sin you've ever committed? Don't answer that out loud. Not that you would. I know that many people are thinking right now, why did he have to ask that? I didn't need to be reminded of that. You start feeling ungodly 
when you think of your past. Well, I've got good news for you this morning. Just four words I want you to see on the screen. It comes right from Romans 4, 5. God justifies the ungodly. Oh, come on. Say amen like you believe it. That's good stuff. If you're new to church and you hear somebody around you say amen, it's, they're saying it's true. That's true, right, church? God justifies the ungodly. It is a gorgeous reality. You're looking at the gospel in a nutshell. You want to explain Jesus to somebody? Take them right there to Romans 4, 5. God justifies the ungodly. There it is. It's right there. What could I do if God did not justify the ungodly? I asked myself that question this week. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing I could do. If God did not justify the ungodly, I'd have no recourse. That truth makes Romans 4 all the more powerful and all the more amazing. For 20 weeks now, we've been looking at Paul's journey with us through Romans, and he's presented these brilliant arguments about who God is and about who we are before him. And he gives us perspective, and then it gets really raw. It gets downright ugly. When you get to chapter 3 in verse 23, and we saw Paul make this statement in Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It is very, very explicit. It says our souls are dirty by our very nature. We desire to do good. We even will to do good, but not do the good that we will. Paul said that about himself. He's caught up in this midst of this argument in Romans chapter 7. Look with me on the screen. He said this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And maybe if you're new to church, you're thinking, that's really harsh, Paul. Why are you being so hard on yourself? Well, he knows the origins. He knows our sin rooted in our forefather, Adam. And that by one person's sin, death entered this planet and took over everything. This is what Scripture says, Romans 5.12. It says this, Through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Have you ever tripped over why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much death and so much sickness and so much decay? Why do people in Chicago kidnap a mentally disturbed young man and hold him hostage for 48 hours and torture him and put it on Facebook for the entire world to see. Why does humanity do things like that? That passage right there tells you. Death entered the world. Sin brought it. And so we struggle with this constant action of humanity's worst behavior. All disease, all suffering, all sickness, all decay, it comes right from there. Sin entered the world. And death followed, and decay began to rot our planet. So the result is, from, from birth, we're sinners. Not only because of the things we do, not only because of the things you did this last week, but because of who we are by our very nature. The result is we're sinners from birth. Sin is our core problem. And I know I'm not telling you church people anything new. If you've been to church for any length of time, you know that. It saturates us. It's a tyrant, even to the degree that it warps our thinking. That was Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1. Do you remember that? He said this, they became futile. Romans 1.21, they became futile in their speculations. What's that? Their, their mind, their mindset. Their mindset became warped. A foolish heart was darkened. It's one thing to be a slave, and it's what it sounds like right now that I'm describing, right? Like somebody's in slavery. 
It's one thing to be a slave. It is another thing entirely to be a slave and to relish the slavery. But that's what Scripture says about us. Jesus said those who are caught up in darkness, they love the darkness, and they don't want to come out into the light lest their deeds would be exposed. That's exactly what Jesus said about us. If it's been feeling very dark to you up to this point, here's where light breaks in, and this is where it gets happy. Get your amens ready. In, in the midst of our slavery, beautiful promises from God's Word begin to emerge, and they just jump off the pages. Look again at Romans chapter 4, but look at it in full context. Verse 5. To the one in the brackets, if this is you, this belongs to you, to the one who believes in Him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Yeah, louder than that, you guys. Come on. I'm going to have you dancing in the aisle pretty soon. Okay. God justifies the unrighteous. He, he brings godliness to those who are ungodly. He credits your faith as righteousness. Here's the truth. I'm guessing somebody's believing this this morning too. It is so hard to believe that's true. It's very, very hard for people to get themselves mentally over that hurdle to believe that God would take all your mess, everything in your past, and just throw it away and exchange it for the righteousness of Jesus Christ just by believing. That is very, very hard because our mindset is we want to earn it. We want to work for it. We want to do things to get it because we believe we're capable of doing things to get it. So this is what God requires of you. God requires, it demands actually, that you start by accepting that you are ungodly, that you can't do anything about it. That you are ungodly, you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And that is not as easy as you think. Because if you've been a believer in Jesus Christ for any length of time, you've probably forgotten what it's like to be in the place where you're trying to understand this stuff. To get over that hurdle of having it make sense. Until a person confesses that they're ungodly, they are not a candidate for salvation. Why? Because they're still hoping in their own capacity still thinking I can do things to make God like me. If I just give away enough money, if I just serve enough meals at the mission, maybe then will God will like me. See, they're still hoping in their own capacity. They have to come to the place where they believe they're ungodly, and then they're a candidate for salvation. To the one who does believe, though, look closely at Romans 4, 5, to the one who does humble themselves, to the one who does believe in God's capacity, what does it say? Their faith is credited to them as righteousness. In other words, God makes a deposit into your spiritual account. And that is an account that can never be overdrafted. That's a cool thought. When God makes a deposit, you can't overdraw it. If you could possibly, you think in your mind, out-sin God and lose your salvation, you'd be thinking, I can overdraft that account. God says, you can't overdraft that account. Once I've made a deposit into it, you are forgiven for eternity. You are free because you are free indeed because of what Jesus did. God makes a permanent deposit. So you may have great financial capacity this morning, but that does not earn you justification with God. You're going to look at a guy this morning who thinks that he's got enough capacity until he comes to the end of himself. 
You, you may have great accomplishments here on earth. You may have a lot of letters after your name. Maybe you've earned a lot of degrees, but that will not get you justified before God. God says there's only one way. There is only one way for you to receive forgiveness of sin, and that's through Jesus Christ. If you're new to church, you're thinking, could this possibly be true? Is this really true? It's only true because of Jesus. I really thought that was going to get an amen. Come on. Help the online audience to feel like they're part of this, you guys. Okay, so hear this. God justifies you not by disregarding your sin. Maybe that's what you thought he's done. Maybe you think that he's just going to just wink at it. That is not what God does. God justifies you not by disregarding your sin, but by taking your sin and putting it on Jesus. He imputes it to Jesus, and Jesus puts his righteousness on you. So Romans 5, 6 is incredibly beautiful also. And it says this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, God died for the ungodly. That ought to catch us up. That ought to catch us up on what we've been going through in the last number of weeks together. Jump with me into verse 5 so we can set up verse 6 really well. I want you to look at it in full context. It says, to the one who does not work, that's the way it started out in verse 5. What's he talking about there? He's not talking about employment. He's not talking about your job, the things you do for a living. He's talking about a person who doesn't work for their salvation. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. You cannot begin to imagine how hard that was for somebody living in the first century to process that information. Because if you grew up in the Jewish culture where you believed you could earn your way to God, where you could do enough good things to make God like you, that came across as a shock. That's new information. Look closely at what Paul's saying. God justifies the ungodly. This term ungodly is a really clear word in the Greek language. And it comes across very, very strong, a strong term. It defines someone who's living completely without any regard whatsoever for God. Now, I want you to see the word that's in your notes this morning. It's one of three Greek words. You'll see it on the screen as well. It's this word, asabes. And it's talking about this ungodliness. It's actually calling that person wicked. Dr. Moore, he was a professor at Cambridge, when he was studying this word to teach it to his students, he came across with these commentary-type thoughts. I wanted you to see his quote on the screen. As he looked at this word, he said, this is an intense word. It's a dark word. It describes not the sinner only, but the open, defiant sinner. Sounds like the worst kind of sin. Like the worst kind of sinner. Like a Stalin. Like an Idi Amin. Like a Bashar Assad. The, the people who would do just horrendous things. Paul comes back and he says, God justifies that kind of person. God brings justification, and this is shocking to the religious community. Now follow the thinking. A holy God who accepts unholy people on the basis of absolutely nothing but faith. You see why people in 2017 trip over this as much as those in the first century tripped over it? Like, what? I just have to believe? I just have to believe that Jesus did this, that God justifies the ungodly, makes the next verse 
all the more amazing as we begin looking at King David's life. Go with me to verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So he's setting up a quote here. Paul is reaching back into time. He's going ancient. We think Paul's ancient. He's 2,000 years ago. David's 1,000 years before Paul. David is reaching to this generation when he speaks the word you're about to read. Paul's quoting him for a specific reason. Why bring an ancient dead king who died 3,000 years ago into this conversation? Well, everyone who knows just a little bit about God has heard of King David. And when, when the ancients think of King David, they think of, he's the king of kings. He's like this guy whom God said is after my own heart. They put him right up on the same level as Moses and Elijah. He's really elevated. Why bring David into this conversation? Remember what Paul's doing. He's trying to emphasize this point. He's amplifying this truth. Romans 3.23, we've all sinned. We're all short of the glory of God. But in Romans 4.5, God justifies the ungodly. So even though you're unworthy, you can be made worthy. Even though you're not worthy of God, God can make you worthy. And he brings David into this conversation. Why? Because David committed the most egregious sins. He not only murdered his own loyal friend, He's caught up in adultery, and he arranged the murder of his own loyal friend to hide the adultery of the relationship he's having with that man's wife. And that woman is made pregnant by David's adulterous relationship, so to hide the fact that she's pregnant and to hide the adultery, he orchestrates deviously a murder of that man who is David's good friend who came to him and said, how can I serve you better? And David arranges for him to be exterminated. That very same David is quoted in verse 7 and in verse 8 because he knows the tortures of going through this egregious misbehavior with God and coming out the other side, what it means to be forgiven. Look at verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered and he's quoting David very interesting, interestingly from Psalm 32. Psalm 32 was written after David had committed relationship adultery with Bathsheba. It's his prayer of confession. If you haven't read Psalm 32 before, I encourage you to go into that later today. It's written after his abandonment of God's law. That's why he's talking about lawless deeds here. So David's writing out of his own experience. He's confessing. His behavior brought him nothing but sorrow. It destroyed him physically and it destroyed him mentally. Let me show you an example. Psalm 32, 3, look with me on the screen. This is David talking. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. That's the same passage where he said, blessed is the one whose sin is not held against him. Picture this. David, according to the ancients, was rocking back and forth on the palace floor, had himself sprawled out on the tile, groaning because of what he had done and the way that he had abandoned God. You see these amazing extremes in Psalm 32. And David's crying out saying, those sins, those sins that sucked me in and took my vitality away from my life and left me groaning on the floor, those very things have been forgiven me. I've been given relief from the enormous guilt. Watch verse 8, the way that he says it. 
Verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Do you notice right there what he's done? He's gone from plural, blessed are those, to singular, blessed is the man. He's talking about his own experience. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. I want you to pay attention to what he's not saying. He's not saying, good thing I got a lot of money in the bank because I can buy my way in. Good thing I am well endowed because I can give away so much that God's going to like me. You notice what he's not saying? He's not saying, good thing I'm king because I have so many accomplishments. I have so many letters after my name. God's got to take notice of me. Now, that's not what he's saying here. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So what kind of blessing is he talking about? I'm going I'm to get, get Greek with you for just a minute, okay? All right? In, 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 just endure this for about three minutes. I want you to see this word blessed. And, and it's in your notes. It's, it's going to be on the screen as well. It's this word makarios. Now, I know you're familiar with the word because Jesus used it a lot. It means to be supremely blessed, right? To be really fortunate, to be well off. That kind of captures the thought, but not really. It doesn't bring the full context of it. You have to understand the context. The highest term possible someone living in the Greek culture could use is this word makarios. It's this word blessed that we've translated over in the English language to describe a state of euphoria. Someone who we might say in 2017, that guy's totally geeked. I didn't say geeked, I said geeked, right? He's, he's totally euphoric. It's the highest term a Greek could use. This is really important to clarify why this is being used here. Because you can still be blessed this morning and be in miserable circumstances. Things can absolutely not be going your way. You might have a family member passing away today. You might have just lost a job you might have a relationship that's going south. Things may not be working out in your life, but God says you can still be makarios. You can still be blessed. Now watch how Jesus uses this. Look with me on the screen, Matthew 5.11. Same word. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. Blessed doesn't mean healthy. Blessed doesn't mean prosperous. It doesn't mean everybody's going to like you and you're accepted. In this case, what it's talking about is between you and God, things are good. You're in relationship with the king who can forgive you. So it means you're deeply secure. You are profoundly content in God, even if you're broken this morning. Even if your heart feels like it's being ripped out of your chest, maybe you've got pain in your body physically. Maybe there's a heartbreaking relationship going on or you're just troubled in your mind. Don't lose sight of this. God says you are incredibly fortunate. You are blessed. Why are we blessed? Look closely at verse 8. The Lord will not take into account. This word not is the next Greek word I wanted to emphasize with you. It's an emphatic negative in the Greek language. It means this, never ever, never ever by no means will God ever take your sins into account. So 3,000 years, you catch this, 3,000 years ago, 
David's saying, are you hearing this new hope? You are blessed. You are fortunate beyond your understanding. It's echoing across time. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will not credit. So catch this new hope. Blessed are you when Jesus takes your sins away. Blessed are you when you wake up every morning to the truth that Jesus rescued you. If you want a way to start out 2017, I'm telling you, this is it. Forget your past. Remember what's in your future. Blessed are you when you wake up every morning to the truth that Jesus rescued you. Because the truth is this. Those who put their faith in him are completely, get your amens ready, are completely forgiven. Well done, you guys. That's our God. Look with me at verse 8 again. It says, Whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Legizomai is this word account. It's a banking term. It's borrowed from the first century among the money changers. You hire a CPA, you hire an accountant, you hire somebody to go over your finances, they're looking at your deficits and they're looking at your assets. And they take an inventory of everything that you own and everything that you owe and they bring it together and present it before you. Paul's purposely quoting David here for this very reason. He's saying God will not take an inventory of your sin. All your past is wiped away. So in regards to eternal judgment, nothing will be brought up. If you're living your life thinking there's going to be a giant movie screen someday in heaven, I'm going to have to sit and endure that and watch my life be played out before all the world. No. That is not your God. God says, I have separated your sins as far as the east are from the west, and I remember your sins no more. Look with me. Look at that verse on the screen. This is you, Psalm 103.12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Wow. Somebody tell me how far that is, because I don't know. I mean, that's infinity, right? It just keeps going and going and going, and God says, I remember them no more. There's no giant movie screen waiting for you. I'm glad for that, aren't you? (laughs) I don't want God putting that on display. Believers are the most privileged people on the planet. The question of the very thing that could send you to hell has been settled forever. The king has pronounced you free. Anybody feeling like dancing yet? All right. So Spurgeon, I I don't know if you're familiar with Charles Haddon Spurgeon. If you haven't read his stuff before, you should. He lived in the 1800s also. Seemed like all the good theologians lived in the 1800s. Okay, so so Spurgeon is looking at this passage. And he leads a church in London, England, a massive church. And he's studying this passage, and he began thinking about the story of the prodigal son. And that's a, a guy who, who was really young, and Jesus told the story how he abandoned his family, took his dad's fortune, went out and wasted it all, hanging out with, with prostitutes, and he's just gorging himself on all kinds of food. And then he spends all the money, and he decides, I've got to go back home, and I've got to beg for my dad's forgiveness. And his daddy is standing on the porch when he sees his son a long way off, and Jesus said, that daddy, he got off the porch and he ran to meet his son. 
and embraced him and said, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. My son has come home. So Spurgeon's got that thought in his mind when I want you to see his quote as he's thinking this through, connecting Romans 4 with what he says here. He says this, the word of welcome is here pronounced and the music and the dancing begin. I'm trying to picture Spurgeon doing a little jig, right? Okay, so he says, a full, instantaneous, irreversible pardon of transgression turns the poor sinner's hell into heaven and makes the heir of wrath a partaker in blessing. Guys are so eloquent at that period of time. You know, they, they don't have any smartphones to distract them. They're just they're putting their thoughts right out there because they're thinking on it all day long. Look what God did for us. There's two amazing truths coming out of here, and you don't have to remember my words today. Just remember these two things. These are God's truths. You see them on the screen. God forgives sin and credits righteousness in its place. Here's the cool part without any work on your part. You didn't have to do anything to earn it. Here's the second thing. God does not take into account your sins, meaning He doesn't put it on a video screen on display for all the world to see. Once we are justified, your account, your spiritual account, contains the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It can never again contain your sins. Christians do sin, don't we, church? Okay, most of you are being honest. We do, and those sins have to be dealt with. They have to be confessed. If we're going to have fellowship, according to 1 John 1, if we want to have fellowship with God, we've got to deal with those things that cause a breach in the relationship. We want the relationship restored. We confess to God the things that we've done that displease Him. But those sins can never be held against you if you are a believer in Jesus. So in the real world, David's guilty. He's murdered his friend. He's carried out adultery. Birthing a child with a woman who's not his. All the world, anybody looking at his actions can say, that guy doesn't qualify for God's favor. Yet David clearly understands he's been forgiven. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not take into account. See, David's faith is in God's capacity to save. It's not David's great faith. It's David's faith in the greatness of the God who can save him. That's the truth. He believes that God is able to provide a way. So when we believe in God's capacity to deal with our sin, we not only get God's righteousness, our unrighteousness is gone as far as the east is from the west. That's called the great exchange. Theologically, the way that theologians look at this, they call it the great exchange. Our sins are laid on Jesus. His righteousness is laid on us. That's called justification. So that brings us back around full circle to Romans 4 or 5. It's, I promise you, it's the last time you're going to see it, at least for a couple weeks. God, say it with me, God justifies the ungodly. All this is possible because Jesus died for our sins. Once that faith kicks in, once that faith takes hold of who Jesus is and what He has done, believing that He died and was resurrected, justification happens immediately. There's no room for works. There's no room for earning it. 
So we end today with Romans 8.1. I know I'm skipping forward a few weeks, but, well, months probably, but Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe it? Let's do it together. Let's read it together, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm thinking when we get to that, I'm going to spend a week just on therefore. I mean, he's taken eight chapters to get there, right? It's like everything's in the past. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. It's the heart of the gospel, new hope. It's the heart of the reason for celebrating communion. So let the music and the dancing begin, right? This is a reason to celebrate. You're free. You are free. Jesus proclaimed you free indeed. If maybe you're not there yet this morning. Maybe you're not yet a believer. You want this brand new beginning we're talking about. On the table in the back of the auditorium is a brown table. There's envelopes. I, I personally stacked them there yesterday. It just says, next steps. You want to know what to do next? Just grab one of those envelopes on your way out today. It'll tell you what to do. How do I take this to the next level? The Lord Jesus Christ alone can make you right with God. For that reason, we get to take communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul said he's giving us some instructions that were handed from him to share with the church. Let me read them to you. I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Here's the reason why. Because you're about to do this. You should know the reason why. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you're not only proclaiming that he died for you, but you believe that he rose again because he can't come again if he didn't rise again. So you're proclaiming both. You're proclaiming the gospel here. That's why verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord, but a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Here at New Hope, we allow time for individuals to process where they're at in relationship with God. This time right now is for you before you come to one of the tables, either in the front or in the back or up in the balcony. Somebody's going to be standing at a table when you get there, and they're going to remind you. They're just going to simply say to you, this is the body and the blood of Christ. Pick up the elements and take it back to your seat with you. All right? But this time right now, it's for you to go to prayer. Just talk to your Heavenly Father. How marvelous. How wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Sounds like the words to a good song, doesn't it? That is amazing. If you're able to stand, would you join me in standing where you're at? We're told that it was on the night that not only that Jesus was betrayed, but Scripture fills in the blanks. It says it was the night that he was arrested and scourged and abandoned by everyone who was dear to him. Before all that happened, he held up the bread and he said, my body's about to be broken for you, so when you take this bread, remember what I did. 
And that same meal, he held up a cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When you drink it, remember, my blood was shed for you. Father, we remember and we proclaim. We stand before you as those who not only belong to you, but I know you're incredibly proud of us because you said you are. You're proud that we belong to you. You've called us your sons and daughters. We are adopted by you. So we stand before you victorious. Those whose sins have been set free from us and we are the redeemed of the Lord. So we stand before you forgiven. God, we are grateful because that is marvelous and it is wonderful and it is amazing how marvelous is your love for us. We praise you in the name of the one who redeemed us, the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.